Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning. We thank you for the joy and the privilege and the freedom that we have to gather here as your people. Father, we thank you for the glory of this local church as we've seen uh, displayed so far in the text of Ephesians. We thank you, Father, that you are doing a work here, that you have lit a lampstand, and, Father, that it burns brightly to your glory. Father, we confess that we need your help. Our thoughts are scattered. Our hearts, by nature, are divided. But we desire to bring our worship before you. We desire to bring listening ears, Father, that we only have by your grace, we desire to bring a heart that is united to fear your name, which again, we only have by grace. Would you send your spirit to give us what we need to worship in spirit and in truth as we come under your word? Father, would you produce in us a heart that is indeed alive from the dead, Father, so that we would rejoice and praise you in life and, Father, so that we would see the glories of what you've displayed for us in your word. And, Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we move this morning into chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. And you might go ahead and turn there. I'll reference verse 1 early on, Ephesians chapter 2. In terms of the flow of Paul's logic moving into chapter 2, uh, let's connect it just for a moment with what we've seen in chapter 1, uh, which is pretty much uh, just introduction so far. Paul has laid out his summaries, uh, his summary of the glories of the local church, uh, and we handled that under verses 1 to 14. And then we saw last week his response, which is to be our response also, of constant thankfulness and prayer for the church's growth in Christ. This week, as we move to chapter 2, we move from Paul's introduction into the meat of his case for what the church is and for what the church must become in Christ as we continue to grow into the maturity that Paul prayed for. And he prayed for that maturity in chapter 1. He will pray for it again in chapter 2. And as I said, or in chapter 3, he will pray for it again. As I said, that's sort of like Paul's summary uh, for his purpose of the book of Ephesians. He's unfolding the glories of the local church, and he's doing this doctrinally in the first three chapters. He'll do it practically in chapters four through six. And his desire and his prayer for the church, for the local church at Ephesus and for the local church at Calvary Bible Church, is that we would grow up into the fullness of the maturity of Christ. And so... Uh, what we'll see as we move into chapter 2 is that the necessity for Paul's larger case, so he's unfolded in brief a summary of the glories of the church, we're going to see a need for his explanation of these things in more detail. This is apparent from the first verse of chapter 2. I said I would reference this early on, and here it is. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. If this is true, if Paul's audience, the local church at Ephesus, and for that matter, the local church at Calvary, if we were dead 
then we could definitely use an explanation of how it is that the glories of eternal life that are just breathtakingly displayed in in verses 1 to 14, how is it that that in fact has come to us if we were dead in our transgressions and sins? That's the explanation we need, and that's the explanation that Paul is about to unfold for us. As you know, we are confronted from the earliest pages of Scripture with the troubling reality of death. The very first appearance of this reality, and at this point it's a potential reality, comes in the second chapter of Genesis, where God warns Adam of the penalty of sin. Verse 17 of Genesis 2, God says to Adam, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. If there were any question as to whether that penalty was actually enforced for Adam and Eve and for their descendants, our text this morning removes all doubt. Each and every one of us, according to verse 1 of Ephesians 2, each one of us is born spiritually dead. And as I said, the reality of death is, for all of us, at least naturally, it's a troubling reality. You know this is true, and you especially know it is true if you've been near a dead body. Whether a person, be that a loved one, or even an animal, perhaps a beloved pet, many of us know what it's like to stand next to a dead body and to wish, without being able to do anything about it, that life could be restored to that body. Death is a troubling reality. Part of what is so troubling about death is the fact that as those who are dead, it is utterly impossible for us to resist or to turn back our own deadness. Kelly and I have an illustration we like to use for this from one of the kids' books we've gone through for family devotions. And unfortunately, that book is packed in a box already somewhere. But uh, we talked about it this week, and we're almost certain, with the testimony of the kids also, that this comes from Star Mead's book, The Mighty Acts of God. The illustration goes something like this. Star asks the kids to imagine standing next to a dead body while holding a green pencil. Why green? I don't know, but that's what she says. Imagine standing next to a body while holding a green pencil. The dead person will come back to life, we're told, if we can just get them to lift their hand and reach for the green pencil. In our effort to get them to do the one thing that will bring them life, we might imagine yelling at the dead body pleading with this person just to do one simple thing. Lift your hand, just one small movement, ever so slightly, to reach for the green pencil and you'll come back to life. But of course, it doesn't matter. For someone who's dead, whether the task is to reach for a green pencil or to lift a five-ton object or to sprout wings and fly, there is nothing they can do. And there's nothing we can get them to do. They are, the dead are dead. We can yell and shout at them, but we won't get them to budge their hand to reach for the green pencil. And so, when we read, as we did this morning, of the question posed by God to Ezekiel in view of the dry, dead bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, and let me just point out, Rod, thank you for graciously reading through 22 verses. It was only supposed to be 14. (laughs) I was actually part of a group standing out there, and I was thinking, did I tell him to read the whole book of Ezekiel? But no, it was just 22 verses. And I don't know where 22 ends, but that was just, you can make note because this is relevant to what I'm about to talk about. 1 through 14 
is the valley of the dry bones. So when we read, as we did in, the, in that text, when we read beyond there, of the question posed by God to Ezekiel in view of those dry, dead bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, this is God's question to Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? Well, I think that we're probably with Ezekiel in his response. Did you catch that? Oh, Lord Yahweh, you know. God is the one who has imposed the penalty of death on those who have sinned. And even a prophet like Ezekiel, in himself, he is helpless to resist or to turn back the effects of the death penalty God has imposed. And that's a good place to zero in, actually, in terms of the context for our text this morning. We find in Ephesians 2, when we get to verse 12 specifically, Paul emphasizes the hopelessness we all share in our naturally dead state. And Paul connects this hopelessness to our relationship, or our lack thereof, with the nation of Israel. That's verse 12 of our text this morning. Why is that? Why were Gentiles, why were all the nations so hopeless in light of our alienation from Israel? Well, to answer that question, think back to Israel's purpose as a nation. Following the Exodus, God tells Israel in Exodus 19 that he would establish them as a nation of priests to mediate God's goodness to the other nations. Israel, like Adam, was to be God's vessel for blessing the whole world, drawing them to the Lord. God describes through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 how Israel would draw the nations to God. That is to life. If God is life, then to have life, we need to be drawn to God. This would happen through Israel, it says in Deuteronomy 4, as they kept God's law of life, and the nations saw the result of God's wisdom at work in his people, leading them to life. But in the later parts of Deuteronomy, and then especially by the time of the prophets, we learn that what Israel mediated to the nations instead of blessing and life for obedience, instead they mediated curse and death through their disobedience. To the point where it says in Zechariah 8, verse 13, that Israel and Judah had become a curse among the nations. You see, as they disobeyed and experienced the penalty of their disobedience, as they were scattered to the other nations, and I mentioned this in Sunday school this morning because it's relevant to what we were talking about in there also, the nations looked at that and they said, if this is what it means to have Yahweh as your God, we don't want anything to do with that. So was that driving the nations toward God and toward life? No, we were participating in Israel's curse. We were being driven from God and towards death. This is what Paul has in mind when he writes about our deadness and hopelessness in connection with our alienation from Israel, the nation through which we were supposed to receive blessing. And this is the point relative to Ezekiel chapter 37. If it seemed impossible to Ezekiel that the dead bones of Israel could live, it was doubly impossible that the dead bones of the nations could live. Their curse became our double curse. But we will see gloriously in this text today that God had compassion and mercy in a way that gripped the Apostle Paul's heart and in a way that should grip our hearts also. This is the big idea for our sermon this morning coming from this text in Ephesians 2, although these words are paraphrased from Jesus in John chapter 12, that when the Son of Man was lifted up, he drew the dead to life. When the Son of Man 
was lifted up, he drew the dead to life. Beloved, this is the best news you or anyone else can possibly hear. God is able and God has drawn the dead to life by the death of Jesus. I want to ask you to keep that thought in mind, and as I asked you to earlier, if you haven't already, turn to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And if you would, stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And my apologies, it's another whole chapter. (laughs) This is where the 22 verses came from, by the way. This is 22 verses. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us, In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. What we're going to see as we go through this text this morning is the first part of Paul's explanation of how those without hope, those who were dead, 
are now put in the glorious position of the church, which he described for us already in chapter 1. Paul will walk us through, and you see this in your outline, three realizations by which God draws the dead back to life through Jesus. And just to connect this with what I've already said, how does God bring the dead to life in Ezekiel 37? He tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the dead bones. And although we don't have record beyond telling the bones to live of what the word is that brings the dead to life, this in Ephesians 2 is the gospel that brings the dead to life. So these are the three realizations to be prophesied, as it were, from God's word to make the dead alive. Starting with realization number one, realize you're complete, and there's a typo there, you can scratch the D off, realize your complete deadness. Realize your complete deadness. Now, I should say up front, I'm going to use that word realize in more than one way here, and I'll explain this as we go uh, for the other two points. But first, let me say for this point that by realize, I mean we need to accept and admit our deadness, including all of its implications for our hopelessness and for our inability to come back to life. We need to admit and accept our complete deadness. Now, the first thing to notice in verse 1 is what I've already pointed out, that we, in our natural state, were born dead. And we can understand Paul's meaning here as representing spiritual death. And if you recall, I mentioned that back in Genesis 2 and 3, spiritual death is in fact what God had in mind in the garden primarily when he gave the prohibition and said it would lead to death. It did. They turned away from God immediately. That is spiritual death. They lost the source of eternal life at that point. Spiritual death. We can understand that Paul's meaning here is spiritual death since he refers to us in verse 2 as walking. So that's, that's metaphorical or figurative, but the dead don't walk unless they're spiritually dead. So we were, Paul says here, the walking dead. And we can actually draw an inference from this as to why this reality can be hard for people to accept. Our experience of this is not one of being entirely dead. We are the walking dead. That is, we in some sense have life, and so we are able to convince ourselves that we're not dead. But, Paul says, we are dead. And notice, this is verse 1, and then it's expanded on in verses 2 and 3. Paul describes the context and the experience of our deadness. First, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, as Paul Washer has noted, this is indeed what is known in the Greek as a dative of sphere. And if that doesn't ring any bells, then good. Washer effectively moves our attention from the academic side of that as a construction in the Greek to the devastating picture Paul is painting with these words. Imagine, Washer says, that a corpse is submerged in a cesspool. Imagine a corpse submerged in a cesspool. The contents of the cesspool have been produced by the corpse. That is what it means for us to be dead in our transgressions and in our sins. We are trapped, submerged in a filth and misery that has proceeded from us in our deadness, and we have no way to lift ourselves out of that sphere in which we are dead 
and lifeless. Now that's pretty disturbing, right? But rightly so, and I'm sorry if that offends you, but it should. Scripture is often more graphic and more offensive than that in terms of what we and our sin are like before a holy God. Verse 2, Paul expands on this. We were, as I said, in another sense, the walking dead. As we walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, verse 3, we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I want us to gather two important implications from this. First, I want you to see whose side this says we were on. Now, this is another reason, as I've mentioned, I see it as good to do this Ephesians study on the tales of, of studying the first, chapters, uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis. Do you remember the simple two-sided opposition God establishes in Genesis chapter 3? When Eve sinned, she joined Satan in his rebellion and death. She went away from God, who is life, and we see this again in both Adam and Eve hiding from God. They turned voluntarily away from God, away from life, in the aftermath of choosing sin and death instead. And in Genesis 3.15, God announces unilaterally that he's restoring Eve back to his side, back to life on the basis of the promised Messiah. And then, as if to make his point there unmistakable, he calls Eve the mother of all the living in Genesis 3, verse 20. So this is established back in Genesis 3. There are only two sides. There's the side of God and life, and there's the side of Satan and death. So back to our text, what is Paul saying about us in our dead state? Whose side were we on? We were on the side, he says, of the ruler of the power of the air. Whose side is that? Satan's. That's the first important implication here. We were dead because we were on Satan's side. His side is death. Secondly, I want you to see the implication of our own willing participation in this death, just like Adam's and Eve's. If we walked according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, then we were ourselves sons of disobedience. That's reinforced in verse 3. We were conducting ourselves, it says, in the lusts of our own flesh, strong desires of our own flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is where we get to that other way of describing sin and death that I referenced a while back when we were in the first part of chapter 1. If you'll recall, to have life in its essence is to flow outward, like a spring of living water, right? Like the flow of water that welled up from Eden to water the entire earth. And like the blessing that man was supposed to be as the image of God, according to our mandate, to multiply and to fill the earth with the image of God and with God's blessing. That's the essence of life, is a move outward to give oneself and to bless. You recall now what I said about sin and death in that light? That to be in sin essentially is the opposite of life. And what is the opposite of life? Death. And so sin and death are an inward rather than an outward curvature. This is what it means to conduct ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It means to indulge in every kind of selfishness. As I've said previously, it means to be a selfish sponge or a leech rather than a fountain of life. 
Now, this is what it means that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But like I have in the outline, this is something you need to realize. As I said, as in you need to accept and admit that this is true of you. This means repentance. You see, our normal way of operating is not to admit this about ourselves. We see this constantly in the world around us and even in ourselves, don't we? Who wants to admit that our way of being and thinking is wrong, essentially, inherently wrong? Who wants to admit that our strongest desires, who we are and identity, the talk of identity is all the rage, isn't it? Who wants to admit that our essential natural identity in ourselves is one of death and that our strongest personal desires lead to death for ourselves and for those around us? And if it's our desires that are rightly labeled death, realize that at the same time, the implications are for our thoughts and actions as well. You've heard this many times from this pulpit before. Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want. And we want what we want because we think what we think. And I'm sorry I don't have more time this morning to expand on that and demonstrate it thoroughly from Scripture. But the important point is this. Everything about us, our thoughts, our desires, and our actions, everything about us and ourselves is utterly corrupt and dead. And the repeated testimony of Scripture is that the first step towards repentance is to admit this fact together with its implications for us. We see this in Job chapter 42, which I've often pointed to previously as the Bible's paradigm for the heart of repentance, where Job, recognizing God's rightness in Job's suffering and in God's judgment and judgments and purposes, Job says this, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. In Isaiah 57, God rebukes Israel that when they wore themselves out, pursuing their various idolatries, going after the lusts of the flesh, as it were, they were putting their hope elsewhere than in God. And instead of admitting that it was hopeless, they renewed their self-determination to do things their own way. They didn't admit and accept their deadness. Isaiah writes this, You were tired out by the length of your road. And that's what we find. Israel found that. It's tiresome to pursue idols. But listen to what the rebuke is. Yet you did not say it is hopeless. They did not admit and accept that they were dead. You found renewed strength to pursue your idols. Therefore, you did not faint. Similarly, in the same context we considered earlier, a chapter before the dead bones of Ezekiel 37, listen to this promise from God. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 31. This is God's promise as he describes the heart he would give one day to Israel, accompanying the outpouring of his spirit on them. That's the promise in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a spirit. I will put my spirit in you corporately as a nation to obey me. And as I talked about this morning, as I've talked about previously, the church is the whole person, the whole people to have this spirit, to have this heart. So that new covenant promise is fulfilled first in the church. It's always and forever been fulfilled individually in each individual believer. So the upshot is you have this spirit if you are God's and you've received his spirit. Okay, so this is the promise given that accompanies it. He says, then, when I give you this spirit, you will remember your evil ways 
and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves. Job says, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Israel failed to say it is hopeless. They found renewed strength to pursue their idols. They didn't admit they were dead, but those who received the Spirit will. It says, you will loathe yourselves to your own faces for your iniquities and your abominations. Friends, this is where your heart needs to come to. I don't know specifically what is being produced in you when you walk according to your own natural desires, but I know generally what it produces. It produces death. Consistent with what I've drawn on from the prophets, Jesus in the Gospels describes similarly the brokenness that is necessary for true repentance. Friends, you need to consider that apart from Christ, you are dead. This is what he means when he says, the one who would come to me must hate even his own life. Realize that you're the walking dead. You're dead. And your deadness, your natural desires, your natural way of being and thinking and doing, those produce only death for you and for others around you. In order to come to life, you need to despise yourself. You need to loathe yourself to your own face for your iniquities and for your abominations. Now, of course, if you're dead, then as I said earlier, there's nothing you actually can do, right? Which is why the promise of such a heart of brokenness and contrition is connected with seeing Jesus in a certain way. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says that the outpouring of the spirit of grace and of supplication comes for God's people when we look on him whom we have pierced. And so, back in Ephesians 2, that is where Paul goes next. And this is realization number two that we need to come to. Realize God's rich mercy. Verse 4, but God. As you have perhaps heard before, those are two of the sweetest words we can possibly hear. In the context of the bad news, if God gives us grace to accept and admit that all we have in ourselves is sin and death, then he does so at the same time in the context of revealing to us the incredible riches of his mercy on us in Christ. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And how unlovely is that picture that Paul Washer painted of what it means to be dead in our transgressions? What does it say God did? He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. Now, how did he do this? Glancing down to verses 11 and 12, this is where we read of our former alienation from the life of God in connection with Israel. God had promised blessing and life to Israel and to all nations through Israel. But when Israel disobeyed, it left them and all of us who were supposed to inherit the promises through them. It left all of us, as it says in verse 12, without God and without hope in the world. That, as Paul already said in the first three verses, was a place of sin and misery and death, and it was a place of our own making. But now look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Now, something else I don't have time to expand on greatly this morning is the way that God built into his law a provision for the removal of curse. And again, I talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school, but wasn't able to give a full treatment of it. Uh, if you have the notes from this morning, it references, and if not, you can write this down, from March 28 of 2021. Last year, March 28, I did a Sunday school lesson called The Depth and Riches of God's Forgiveness, Week 1. And I go in depth in there into how God built into his law a provision for the removal of curse from his people. And let me just explain it. In a nutshell, God made provision starting back in Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 21 for the pollution and death to be removed from a people and from its land. And the provision he made in his law was for the curse of sin to be removed from a land by its king or its kings being put on a tree. Its leaders would be put on a tree in the place of the people. This is something we see happening repeatedly in the Old Testament. The kings of God's enemy people, especially in the conquest, but then even later with, with Israel, with Saul's descendants. The kings of God's enemy people are pierced through and or hung on trees, and God's wrath turns away from the land and from the people. Well, by the time of the New Testament, we find that it is, uh, like with the land of Canaan during the conquest, God's judgment was falling against his people and their land, and the land was spewing them out as it had the Canaanites. This is what God had promised would happen, that when they walked in disobedience, his curses would come against them, and the land would vomit them out as it had Canaan. There was only one way for the pollution and curse of God's people to be removed. The king of his enemy people needed to be put on a tree. And so Paul summarizes for us in Galatians chapter 3, this is exactly what God did. He, as the king of his people, took on flesh and went himself to the cross. And by doing so, it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And here he quotes Deuteronomy 21. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Beloved, this is what God did for you in Christ. Back in Zechariah chapter 12, where I quoted earlier, that God would pour out a spirit of grace and of supplication on his people. Do you remember what it says there that his people would be doing as he pours out that spirit? They would be looking on him whom we have pierced. It also says that when we look on him in that way, we will mourn. Specifically, it says, God's people will mourn like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, I know that reference probably seems obscure, but it's significant here. The mourning referred to there is Judah's mourning for their righteous king, Josiah. Although Josiah was just a human king, he was a good king. He was the king whose reign started at the young age of eight and who successfully implemented the restoration of the temple and of the observance of Passover in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. And so when the time came to mourn Josiah, the people mourned for him as a king who had done right by his people. They had been unfaithful, but he had been faithful and had led them in a way that in a measure restored them 
to their God. Now, this is where we come to application of point two. You need to realize God's rich mercy. That is, verses 5 and 8, you need to have it realized in you by grace. Even more so than in the case of King Josiah, King Jesus has done what is right for his people. This really is unthinkable. What had we done? And this is all of us, not just Israel. We had received from him goodness and grace upon grace. We had received as the unjust the sun and the rain which he had sent. Every goodness had come down from him to us. And we had rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. And even more Israel, through whom we were supposed to have our hope of blessing, Israel had rejected even more and had rejected their king. And so what did he do? Did he say, fine, I've given and given and given, now I'm done? No. He came, he took on flesh as our king, and he became one of us. And he did what only he could do. As our king, as the king of God's enemy people, he went, as our representative leader, to the death of curse we deserved. And he spilled his own blood to pay that penalty and exhaust that curse. And again, this wasn't just for Israel. This was for everyone who is united to King Jesus by faith. Again, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, friends, this connects back with point one. First, realize that you're dead. That is, realize and admit your own wrongness and inward curvature and sin and death which you had brought on yourself and from which you could not rescue yourself, such that your hearts cry. From Isaiah 53, realizing the rich and incredible, the undeserved mercy God has shown to you, your heart resonates with this cry from Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Friends, this is key here, as even as I read from Isaiah 53. Who does the work in all of this? Ephesians 2 says, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the question has been asked, what does this refer to in verse 8? This, not of yourselves. Does it refer back to grace or to the faith that saves? And here we get to appeal to Greek again. The Greek tells us that this does not match the gender of those nouns. So what does that mean? It means that everything, going all the way back to the beginning of verse 4, is not from us. All this is the work of a compassionate, merciful king who has done what is right. 
just and the justifier. He has done what only he could to save his people who were rebelling against him. Even though we were willingly opposed to him, he shed his own blood under his own law to ransom us. Even though we were willing opposed, willingly opposed to him, he ransoms us and he saves us. Friends, look to your king. Look to the one whom you have pierced. And realize, ask him for the eyes of faith, for the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that you would repudiate and mourn over your own sin, and so that you would realize his rich mercy. This brings us to realization number three. Realize new life in Christ. Friends, if the Lord has granted you the spirit of supplication and of grace by which you have realized your own inherent deadness and you have realized God's rich mercy on you, then there is only one possible response. The way I'm using the word realize in this final point is this. If you have realized the first two points already, then you need to make it real, as it were. You need to realize it as in make it real. In the way, and this is Paul's application here, in the way you relate to Christ's church. And yes, I know that sounds pretty similar to some of what I was saying last week, but again, I would appeal to the fact that Paul is really repetitive in making his point here about what the church is theologically and about what the response of God's people needs to look like to this reality. In teasing this out, let's look first back at the text of chapter 2, verse 10. In verse 10, Paul gives us the purpose for which God has poured out the incredible riches of his mercy on us. And just to note at the beginning of this verse, and I tried to emphasize this in how I read it, there's a contrast here with verse 9. Not by works, for we are his workmanship. Who does the work? Even us, and you'll see, our works themselves are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. To what end did God redeem and recreate us in Christ? To the end that we would no longer be those who seek and absorb and suck everything else dry in the pursuit of our own dead selves, but that we would instead, as we were originally designed and are now newly recreated to be, so that we would do good works. And let me just point out here something that is such a cure for the confusion that so often exists relative to the place of good works in salvation. Two questions. One, is there salvation apart from works? And two, do works accomplish salvation? Hopefully you see immediately the way the text answers those two questions with ease. First, there is no salvation apart from good works. There is no salvation apart from good works. The text says clearly that God accomplishes salvation for the purpose of good works. If God has saved you, you will do good works. They're not optional. There is no salvation apart from good works. Secondly, however, it is clear from the text that good works do not accomplish salvation. Good works do not accomplish salvation. In fact, the text says the reality is the opposite. It is salvation that accomplishes good works. 
Or said differently, good works are the outflow of salvation. Again, if God has saved you, and there's that that two-part opposition, you're either on Satan's side and dead, or you're on God's side and you're alive. If God has saved you, then you are no longer dead. You're alive. And that means rather than serving your own naturally selfish desires, you now look outward to love and to serve those around you. And as I said, this has implications, first of all, for how you relate to the local church. And we could go to Galatians 6, which says, as you have opportunity, do good to all, but especially to the members of the local church. That same theology is at work here, except in Ephesians, Paul's emphasis and focus from first to last is on the local church. So as he's telling us to work these things out, it's in the context of the local church. Now we know this, from where Paul goes throughout the rest of Ephesians. He started with the local church. He's going to end with the local church. His exhortations, starting in chapter 4 especially, pertain to how members of the local church at Ephesus are to love and serve and to submit to each other's preferences. But we see this even starting here in chapter 2. It says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition. This, beloved, is such an important emphasis within Ephesians. And yes, this has to do, first and foremost, with the alienation, as I said, of the nations from Israel. The way Israel had misused and abused the law of Yahweh had earned them, not only them curse from God, but it had earned both them and us alienation from each other as well. That makes sense? So we, there was enmity between us. And this we see going all the way back to the garden, not just Israel. Abel and Cain, enmity, always at work. And we had been earned further alienation through Israel's failure in the Old Testament. But we find in these verses that the effect of Jesus' removal of curse did more than Paul or probably any Old Testament saint might have imagined. As I've noted in previous weeks, Jesus' death had the effect not of making Israel the first people or nation to receive the whole heart to love God. It had the effect of drawing those from disparate nations Jews as well as Greeks, and the diversity that we see in this room is a result of that. That is what happened. Those from Israel as well as the Gentiles, we became one new man. The first whole people to receive the spirit of grace and of supplication. The first whole people to have removed our hearts of stone and be given a heart of flesh. Verse 14, he made both groups one, and broke down the dividing wall of the partition, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh. So this is where it continues to be the work of Christ on the cross. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So this is the, the, the curses for disobedience that spread not just to Israel, but to all the nations through Israel. He did away with them. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man making peace. So Jew and Gentile, that's the the primary reference here, but this is the diversity of us all drawn into one body of unity and peace. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. Brothers and sisters, if you have realized your deadness and if you have realized God's rich mercy to you in Christ, then you are not only one with Jesus, you are one new man. 
What Paul is saying to the Ephesian church here applies just as much to Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. You are one with each other in Christ. Listen to the continued emphasis on unity and oneness in verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Brothers and sisters, our oneness, and this is our oneness as a local body of believers, our oneness reflects the unity of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even to the extent that they are one, the gospel has given for us to be one. And I'm just going to keep reading here through verse 22. Notice the clear emphasis here again on the fellowship of the local church, the saints, God's household. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing. So Paul's prayer for the growth of the church, this is the theological reality. He wants to say, see, taking, taking root growing up more and more and bearing fruit to the glory of God. That's the point of the book of Ephesians. Growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So there again, as I think I've mentioned previously, the Spirit is seen leaving uh, the temple, leaving the corporate nation of Israel in, in the book of Ezekiel. Never going to happen with the church. We are the permanent dwelling place of God's Spirit. He takes up residence in us, and we, in our diversity, but our unity in that diversity, reflect this reality of being the indwelling place, the dwelling place of God's Spirit. So, how do you realize this? How do you make it real? How do you realize new life in Christ? Well, the application of this final point looks a whole lot like the application of our final point from last week. And Marcus, I don't know if you're in this room I don't see you. He reported to me Tuesday evening that our slots have been filled, I think, for the foreseeable future for Children's Church. So <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> and I did think, after I found out it was Wayne and Vicki Morrison serving in there today, uh, praise the Lord for them, I was aiming at the 20%, not at the 20% who do everything and have historically done everything. My encouragement mainly is, well, and it's for everyone. It's for, you know, you know that 80-20 principle, and this is especially true. When 50% of the church is new in the last two years, it's going to be hard to get everyone who's new especially into those serving spots. So thank you for those of you who have responded, and we look for, for more response. Okay, so we realize new life in Christ as we seek to love and serve and to have our hearts knit together in love with our brothers and sisters in this local body of believers. That's pretty practical, isn't it? Look around you. The people God prioritizes for you to love and serve are sitting in this room, and then for those of you down there, they're sitting in this room, and for those of you here, they're sitting in that room down there also. This, here in chapter 2, is how you are to realize the new life that is yours in Christ. Love and serve and submit yourself to the preferences of your brothers and sisters in this local body. So, 
I had some of you ask, including Pastor Randy, if I was actually going to preach the rest of Ephesians in one sermon. And my answer was yes, in the conclusion. So here we go. But the fact is, that actually shouldn't be too difficult. Big picture, Paul in Ephesians 3 continues to expand on the unity of Jew and Gentile in one body. And I referenced this last week. He points out that this is not just for our enjoyment, and it's not even just for God's enjoyment. This is even for the glory of God's name among the angels. Ephesians 3, verse 10. This is so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You see, the cosmic struggle that began with Satan showing up in the garden and the enmity that immediately followed in Genesis 4 where brother is willing to tear brother apart for the sake of his own selfishness. Paul is getting to put on display for the first time here in Ephesians the reversal of that enmity and a whole group of people, the church. And this, the realization that this is a wisdom that is made known even to the angels and stops their mouths relative to the cosmic struggle for dominion, This leads to Paul's great prayer and doxology for the church at the end of chapter 3. Then, chapters 4 through 6, Paul goes into detail about how the church is to put this unity on display. Following a detailed list of put-ons and put-offs in chapter 4, in the context, as I pointed out last week, of the equipping of the members for service in the local church, Paul gives exhortations in chapter 5 about sexual purity, and then from chapter 5 and into chapter 6 about the right exercise of authority, and submission in relationships, including marriage, employers, employees, and parents and children. The rest of chapter 6, mostly in the details of the armor of God and the prayer that must accompany it, explains and reinforces how we are equipped by God for this massive calling to which we are called. So there you go, a jet tour of Ephesians. And I point that out not just to preach the rest of Ephesians in one sermon, but to say this. Friends, brothers and sisters, we have seen the glories and the theological realities of the church unfolded from these first two chapters of Ephesians. We have seen today that when the Son of Man was lifted up, he drew the dead. He drew us, that is, one new man, the church. He drew us to life in him. And so, brothers and sisters, have this life in yourselves. Make an intentional effort. This is your duty, but it's also your joy to not curve inward, but to curve outward, to be a blessing. The path to this, humble yourselves to accept and admit your deadness. Open your eyes of faith if the Lord has given them to you. Open your eyes to see the rich mercy of God in sending his son to die the death you deserved. See how the book of Ephesians emphasizes the need for you to love this local church. Love this church in its diversity and a spirit of unity. Love this church in the ways that are hardest for you. Sacrifice and serve and love, and you will be putting on display to each other, to the world around you, and even to the angels. You will be putting on display the glory of Christ in the church to the glory of the Father through the Spirit. Please pray with me. What a privilege it is, Father, to be your people. We thank you for your word to us through the Apostle Paul that puts on display the glories of what you are doing here at Calvary Bible Church and what you have been doing here.
Father, would you fill our hearts and minds with your truth? Would you send your spirit to give us that humble spirit of grace and of supplication? Father, that we would indeed mourn our own sin, that we would loathe ourselves to our own faces. And Father, that we would do so because we have looked on him whom we have pierced. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in Christ that we could not do, Father, that you have made the dead alive. Father, would you work things out in such a way that this body and the individual members of it would go on being life. Father, no longer death themselves and to those around us, but Father, life in this body and to the world around us, drawing as we were meant to do the people of the nations to your goodness until Christ comes again. We pray in his name. Amen.